Well, hey everyone, good morning and welcome to Res City. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection City, and I just want to welcome you uh, and, and thank you for joining us here on this Sunday morning, uh, whether you are with us uh, here in person or you're joining with us online. We just are very thankful to have you uh, worshiping God with us and also uh, taking time to sort of uh, rebuild around Jesus, which is the sermon series that we're doing this fall, kind of going through the different things Christians believe and sort of, uh, you know, just kind of deconstructing them. It's a, it's a popular word that people are using today. People mean a lot of different things when they talk about it. In our first sermon, we talked a little bit about how this can be a healthy thing for the church when sort of done uh, with an eye on building the church up in love uh, and going back to Jesus himself and sort of uh, recalibrating ourselves around that. It should be sort of a constant practice for us uh, as a church. And so we are kind of spending time this fall going through different things and sort of uh, putting them under the microscope, going to Jesus himself and sort of building back up around that. And uh, just a reminder, as always, we will be doing our Q&R at the end of the sermon uh, as well today. So if you have any questions uh, you'd like for, uh, you know, to hear me respond to around the topic, uh, go to our website, rescitychurch.org, and there is a spot for you to submit a question on there. So we'd love to do that. We love getting questions. Um, if we don't get to them, we, we put a video out during the week, so uh, we, we try to make sure we can respond to everything that comes in. You guys ask great questions every single week, and so I'm looking forward to, to seeing what you guys have uh, today here. Now, our, uh, series to, or our sermon today is going to be on uh, the church. And some biography from me on this. I'm a pastor, so like clearly I have thoughts about the church, you would think, right? And I think for me, it's always important when I think about the church like to reflect on sort of how I ended up in ministry and sort of how where I came from sort of impacted my view of what the church is. Now, a lot of you guys know this. I have talked about it before in sermons, um, but I recognize there's some newer people here, too, so maybe you haven't heard this part of my story. Uh, In college, I uh, really wanted to coach football. Um, it was sort of my, my passion, my dream. Uh, whether collegiately or professionally, I, I had this goal to kind of go as far as I, as I could uh, with that career. And I ended up in college uh, at North Dakota State in Fargo. Um, and if you've ever been to Fargo, you know it's not a huge town. By uh, North Dakota standards, it is a metropolis, but it is not a very large town in the grand scheme of things, about 120,000 people. It's kind of a college town, like NDSU is a fairly large college, and it's a, it's a big part of the whole city there. Um, and, and there's really not a whole, in my opinion, there's not a whole lot else going on in Fargo to sort of put it on the national map, but NDSU football is a pretty well-known brand. If you know anything about college football, you know NDSU's a big deal. They've won, they won like seven uh, out of eight national championships in a row in the 2010s. It's a really big deal, um, kind of on ESPN quite a bit, uh, at two NFL quarterbacks right now, uh, our high draft picks from NDSU. It's a big deal, all right? Um, and I was on the coaching staff as an undergrad. Um, I didn't have a, a you know, I wasn't a, like a, you know, well-known figure or anything like that. But I kind of, my job was to, to make sure the video was appropriate for the coaching staff. So I had a small but important role, but was not well-known. But I was totally okay with that because, and this was a really important thing to me, I kind of realized is I love being a part of something that was bigger than myself, Right, and and that was this this thing that was such an important part of the whole city in, in Fargo, really the whole state of North Dakota. Um, what was the, the NDSU football team? Like everyone understands that this is an, a thing to get excited about. It kind of puts us on the map. We love it, and so that was a really big deal for me, knowing that I was contributing to something bigger than myself. And and you would really feel that, especially on game day. 
Like when you would go into the stadium, here's a picture of the Fargo Dome. Um, it, it's you know green and gold all over the place, as you can see here. Um, you walk in, it's just packed to the brim with people. Uh, they they pretty much sell out every single week. Um, I think when you when you fill up the Fargo Dome, it's like 20,000 people. It becomes like the third largest. Uh, city in North Dakota, which is kind of wild. Um, <laughs> uh, so it gives you a sense for how many people relative to the state are in the stadium, right? Okay, so it's it's a big deal. But there's just like a, an electricity in the air every every Saturday during game day that I just it was. I was so awesome. I loved it. Uh, just the way that you would feel the excitement for the fans around this. And and again, this is like a whole big part of the whole city. Um, the whole city's in on this. And you'd see it when we travel. Like, we played in, uh, one of these national championships. Um, we played down in Frisco, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. And it was packed with people from Fargo. Like, they've started calling this town, like, Little Fargo and, and different things because they're so used to traveling uh, to down there. Now, when I finally left this and kind of moved towards ministry, I, I, I realized that I kind of felt like I had a bit of a hole uh, from it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, this feeling of being a part of something so much bigger. I realized how, you know, important to me that was to feel that. Um, and when I left uh, the, the football team, initially I kind of felt like I was missing that in my life. Now, eventually I came to a, a realization that the church is that, but actually far bigger, right? Because not only are we connected to people you know, all across the country right now who are meeting on Sunday mornings just like we are, we're connected to people all across the world who are doing the same thing. Maybe not at this exact moment because they, you know, the, the timing is a little different in whatever country that they're in, but still they're gathering together on Sunday mornings for the same purpose that we are. And it's not just in the world right now, right? It's stretching back throughout history, right? We are part of a movement that is so much bigger than just the group of us sitting here on Sunday morning. And when I realized that, that was a really exciting thing for me, to sort of realize that far bigger than, you know, any football game, any football stadium, I was a part of something and contributing to something that blew all of that just sort of out of the water. And this was a really exciting thing for me to realize until I realized something else. Most of the church doesn't really feel that way about itself, Okay, like if we're being honest, this is this kind of electricity that, you know, I felt about being a part of something bigger than me, being a part of a group of people that was far larger than me in my corner of the world is not how we often feel about the church a lot of times. Okay, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. That's going to be our big theme. If we're honest, when we think about the church, right, we don't always, you know, have good thoughts about it. Our brains probably go initially to something negative, some, something about the church we don't like currently. And, um, you know, you can read about this in different places. I'll refer you to Twitter, where there is constantly hashing out problems people have with, with everything, really, but for sure, like different, you know, challenges of the church that they might have. But I do remember recently reading something on Twitter, some guy who had worked in ministry for a couple decades or something, and he was like, uh, I, the church is hopeless, it can't be fixed, I have to go start something new. That was like, that was what his Twitter is about apparently now, okay? So it just gives you a sense for like how some people are feeling about the church, okay? There's not this excitement or electricity about what the church is up to in the world among a lot of people, right? Maybe we're excited about our church, right? Or, or, or the church that you're, you, churches you've been a part of, like local gatherings, but not probably the church, Right? Now, I do want to be sensitive in this, all right? I, I, I understand that a lot of people have good reason for this, all right? I, I, I am, I'm aware of that. 
I've heard it said that the church is supposed to be a place where you're close enough to people to where you can really truly be hurt by them, right? We're really good in Minnesota of making sure we don't have a lot of relationships where people can really hurt us, right? Okay, but the church is supposed to be a place where we naturally are close enough to people because we see them on a regular basis, we're vulnerable with them, where they can really hurt us, like because we're exposing ourselves to them. We can really be sinned against in really hard ways because of what the church is. And, and that's what has sort of happened in a lot of different spaces. I know a lot of people maybe have felt that in different areas of their lives, right? Maybe you've experienced hurt and sin that has come with being vulnerable or being well-known, or you've seen the church fail to meet certain expectations that you thought it had for itself. If that's you, I just do want to start up by offering my sort of, you know, grief, <laughs> my, my sorrow of that. That is not okay, right, for the church uh, that, that says that this group of people that we follow Jesus to contribute to hurt, you know, in people's lives. It is not okay. That's not the goal, right? And it's not the goal for us to be hypocrites, to sort of focus on some things that we think are good in the church and turn a blind eye to all sorts of other things because we don't think those other things are important, right? We have to engage with all of who we are as the church, right, and understand what's going on. And I know if that's you, if you're feeling something like that right now, I know one sermon is not going to change your mind on all that, okay? I don't have any sort of, um, you know, grand sort of conception of myself and what I'm about to accomplish here in the next half an hour or whatever. But I do want to encourage you that I do think the church is sort of a place or maybe the place where the wounds that are done from the church can be undone and healed, all right? And that's why I think we need to investigate it. We need to be willing to rethink the church sometimes, to consider what it is and how it sort of has the, the power to perhaps energize us towards excitement about what God is doing in the world again. All right? So what we've been doing in this series is we've been sort of going back to Jesus himself and sort of building what we're doing sort of on him, right, specifically. There's a lot of stuff that has come along in the wake of Jesus in the last 2,000 years, right? And, and, and some of it's really good. Some of it is not so great. It's, a bit, it's going to throw, throw us off the scent a little bit of what Jesus was up to. And so we've been like, let's just go right to Jesus. Let's see what's going on here. Let's understand historically what's going on here and sort of build up right off of that. And Jesus gives us an introduction to the church in Matthew 16. And some scholars call this sort of the, the hidden turning point of his ministry, sort of the, a pivot point in what he's doing because of what's going on. And we talked about this uh, section in, in, uh, in the book of Mark earlier. This is where Peter sort of, you know, he's like, hey, who do people say I am? And Peter's like, you're the Messiah. Uh, and Jesus is like, that's it, you got it. And by the way, I'm going to die and rise again. Like, that's when all this stuff becomes made clear to people, all right? So this is Matthew's account of that passage we talked about in Mark. And in Matthew's account, there's a little bit more that is said. And specifically, it talks about the church. So we're going to go to that place to sort of get a sense for what does Jesus think about the church and how can we build up off of that. So Matthew 16, 15 to 17. We'll do a few more verses after this, but I want to pause on this section first after I read it. But what about you, he asked. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now, Peter, or, or Simon, confesses Jesus as Messiah. That's what's going on here. This is a sort of statement of faith by him. I'm acknowledging that this is who you are, Jesus. And Jesus tells him, you got it. You know, ding, ding, ding. Congratulations. Um, This was revealed to you by God. Okay, this was not revealed to you by a human. It was God himself speaking to you to reveal this to you. 
I'm going to comment on this, right? He's going to talk a little bit about how this moment is sort of what the church is built up of, okay? This moment of God revealing himself to Peter and Peter making this confession. I want to comment on that, this idea that God is the one revealing it here. I think part of the reason that we often have a lack of excitement about the church is that we as Christians can tend to look down our noses at other traditions or other churches or other, you know, you know, types of Christians and think we're better than them. And so when we think of what the church is, we think, ah, you know, we're great, but we've got those weird uncles and cousins over there who are really, really making us look bad or something like that. And what we're telling ourselves, I think, a lot of times when we do that is we're saying, if God is up to something in the world, it's here. It's with what I'm a part of. Okay, that's where God's really working in the world. And this is the language, a lot of churches do use that kind of language to describe, you know, what they're doing. Like, God is really working through us. You know, we are kind of a special group of people that God is working through in the world. And the unspoken sort of sentiment behind that, I think, is that God only really meets people. He only really reveals himself to people who are in my church or my tradition. It's kind of what we're, what we're tacitly believing. We might not really realize it or admit it, but I think that's kind of what, what we're saying when we, when we look down our nose at other churches or Christians. But if it's true that God is revealing Jesus to Peter, then who are we to look down on some other church or some other tradition in arrogance over what's going on there, right? If God is revealing himself to anyone who makes that confession of faith, shouldn't we assume that God is also at work in what's going on there? right? We don't get to decide how God reveals himself to people. Even if we think it should look a certain way or it should look like how God revealed himself to us in the church or the tradition that we've been a part of or that we've really grown or flourished in, that doesn't mean that God is going to do it for every single other person, okay? If he did reveal himself to you in some church tradition, that is really great. That is good. We should celebrate that. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that he can't reveal himself and hasn't revealed himself to people in, in tribes we don't like or that we are different than us, that have different emphases than us maybe, right? We don't get to make that call because the church is founded on the people who give confessions of the faith in the past and, and then who still do today. Okay? It's not like God is giving 10% of himself to one group of people and 90% of himself to some other group, right? I think if God reveals himself, it's coming fully, right? It is God, is, God is not holding back in some tradition, right? He, he's doing it fully in all of our church traditions. And I think we kind of can show a sort of profound lack of respect and awe for what God has done in the past and what he's doing now when we sort of sit in the seat of judgment against other Christians. And we have to be really careful. We have to sort of always be remembering and looking out for this, I think, in ourselves. Because God is a lot bigger than how we have encountered him, right? He certainly is who we've encountered him as, but he's also far bigger than that too, right? And it's wise for us to sort of assume that when we, you know, uh, you know don't, don't sit in arrogance, but sit in humility aside our brothers and sisters in other churches, we are going to find a God who is far bigger than maybe just what we've noticed or seen. Now, does that mean that, you know, does this not mean that God puts up with some foolishness or some misconception of him in different traditions? I think he does, right? I think it, definitely he does. Like, there are times where certain traditions or churches miss things, right? And God deals with their misconception, right, while still revealing himself and being in communion with them fully, right? All our traditions have our examples to varying degrees, all right? Sometimes it becomes so clear, right, that, that we can confidently say God is not working. But I really think that should be somewhere we go as a last resort to talk about other churches, right? It, and even then, it doesn't mean he's not really meeting other people in those spaces, 
right? And he, he, he isn't ironing out or working through people's misconceptions. And it certainly doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, haven't been met in our own misconceptions as well, all right? Again, we're part of something so much bigger than us, so much bigger than what God is doing in your life, so much bigger than what God is doing here at Res City or in St. Paul, right? God is at work in the world in so many big and glorious ways, and we got to celebrate that instead of looking down on other, other places where God is working, all right? That's, a, to me, a huge takeaway from what we find here in Matthew 16. All right, tangent over, though. Let's keep moving on in the passage. Uh, let's do verses 18 to 20. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So Simon gets a new name. He's no longer Simon. Now he's uh, Peter. This is a, 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 both a nickname and I think maybe also a title that Peter is given by, by Jesus for, so after he makes his confession. This is sort of like, you know, so, uh, we see this in other places in the Bible where someone has one name and at a certain point they're given another name. Abram and Abraham. Um, so Paul, you know, goes, goes, his name is Saul. He starts going by Paul at a certain point apparently. It's, it's kind of a normal thing that we find throughout the Bible. And the word Peter is, in Greek, it's, it's Petros, which means rock. And so Jesus is giving him this title, this nickname. You're uh, rock or rocky, like, you know, describing his characteristics. Now Jesus says, you're Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church, right? Is, is Peter literally the one the church is being built on, or is it his confession? Um, there's disagreement about that. This is not the place to really hash that out. It's really like, it's actually a you know, a very long uh, battle between Catholics and Protestants um, over, over this, maybe. Um, either way, though, what, what's clear, I think, for us is that the church is built out of Peter making this confession and then those who follow Peter in making this confession, right? That's what the church is being built up out of. So what does Jesus think the church actually is? Like, why does he use the word church? Maybe, maybe you never thought about that. You've, been, you've grown up hearing the word church your whole life, and you assume it means uh, something, right? You, you assume it means a group of people getting together to worship and sing some songs together and then drink coffee and eat donuts afterwards, and that's probably what Jesus meant too, okay? But that's not what he meant, okay? Uh, so, so what does the word church actually mean? Well, let's back up here. Remember, Jesus is all about the kingdom. He talks about the kingdom of God coming uh, on earth as it is in heaven. He says the kingdom is near. This is a certain uh, important feature of his ministry is describing what's happening in, in words of, of, of kingdom, okay? Now, that's a political word. Kingdom is, is, we understand that as a sort of political word to describe God's coming. And this is, again, this idea of God's kingdom coming onto earth is not a new thing that Jesus is making up. It's the way that this was understood in the wider Judaism of his time as well and had always sort of had kingdom overtones when, like, for example, talking about David coming back and ruling again. That's a king coming back and doing, you know, stuff like David did in the past. This is all kingdom political language. Now, the, ch- the word church is actually a political word too. This is really interesting. Maybe you, you hadn't heard this before, Okay. What it is in Greek is the Greek word ekklesia. 
It can mean a gathering of citizens called out uh, from their homes into some public place, an assembly. It can mean assembly of the people convened at a public place of the council for the purpose of deliberating. Uh, It can also mean the assembly of the Israelites. It's another way that it gets used in the New New Testament. The nation of Israel sort of gathered together in a specific place. Now, one interesting uh, place we find the word ecclesia used is actually uh, to describe Greek city-states. So if you've seen the movie 300 or you know of the movie 300, right? You know, like, this is Sparta, right? We're Spartans, and we have six packs, and we're, like, you know, spray-tanned, and we, you know, don't wear any clothes ever, right? Then that's, right? But if you've seen the movie, like, they kind of talk poorly about, like, Athens and these other parts of Greece, but they're still all Greece, right? Like, that's that's kind of the point. So what you had is these ancient city-states, and they were sort of all loosely part of Greece, but they sort of governed themselves, Okay. The word that the Greeks used to describe these different city-states was ecclesia. All right, that's how they thought of themselves. So these males who were 18 years old, uh, who had control over the policy, judging, electing, running the city-state, you know, that was described as the ecclesia a lot of times in these Greek city-states, um, and also get used to describe like political clubs later on in the Roman Empire. Right? That's, that's what it means. Or we find it in Acts 7, where Stephen is, is about to be martyred, and he's, he's giving a long speech, and he talks about the ecclesia of God in the wilderness, describing the exodus. Okay? That's how he describes the nation of Israel. What Jesus is saying here when he uses this political word to describe the group of people that he's gathering around Peter in his confession is he's saying this regathered nation of Israel who live in this kingdom that's being started in the world in my movement. Okay, that's what he's talking about. An alternate nation, a distinct people with their own king who obey him, who follow him who take ownership over the affairs of it and whose ethics and national identity is rooted in their king and the gift that he's given them. And as Messiah or king, he is the one who Israel, this, this, this Israel, this new Israel is being gathered around. Okay, this is where, uh, this is how we know it's, it's, it's the church because he calls it my church, my, uh, my gathering, my assembly of people. Um, and, and, and really, when we're talking about all this, like political language is the only thing you can really use to describe it. Now, we're just going to scratch the surface of this. There's a lot, right? There's so much to unpack with that, right? And we can only do so much today. Um, and and we, we've talked about this a lot at Red City. Right? We try to talk about what the kingdom is. What does it mean for us to live in the kingdom, right? It doesn't mean necessarily to be a part of a, a, a political party. We did a whole series on that last fall where we kind of differentiated what it means to be part of the kingdom of God rather than some kingdom of man. Um, we talked about this in our sort of vision series, we, or vision sermon we did a few weeks back, talking about heaven coming to earth, right? God's space coming and overlapping with ours. But today, though, I want to talk about it from this lens, and this is kind of our takeaway from this. Nations and kingdoms, they sort of have an identity, right? That sort of people get formed in to look like a certain citizen of it. That you learn to be that by sort of loving what it loves, sort of taking on the characteristics of it, right? And think about it. We have conceptions of different countries. I was listening to an Australian pastor the other day, and he was talking about misconceptions of all Australians he gets sometimes. And he was like, all Australians live in the bush and wrestle crocodiles, right? <laughs> um, and he's just kind of an eye roll, like we don't do that, or most of us at least don't do that, all right? But think about it. America sort of has like a national identity around the rest of the world too, right? We care about our freedom. You know, we all have pet bald eagles or something like that, like, right? This, we, we, you know, nations have identities, and we're formed to sort of be like the people around us by being in the nation, right? That's a part of what it means to be part of a nation. 
The kingdom of God in the church is like this too, where we're supposed to be formed to be citizens of it, to look like a certain distinct entity of people that follow their king and take on the norms of that kingdom. And to be a citizen in this kingdom, Jesus uses the word in other places, disciple. So I think when we're thinking about what it means to be part of the kingdom, we're thinking about what it means to be a disciple. I think that's how Jesus made sense of it in his mind. And so the big idea for the sermon today, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time is unpacking this idea, is that I think the church is a school for discipleship into and in line with the kingdom. A multi-ethnic, a multi-generational, a multi-time and place nation of people that are being formed into disciples to look like citizens of a a kingdom that is not of earth, uh, right, but is coming to earth now through people following Jesus. Okay? Now, discipleship is a word, right, that churches use all the time, right? Maybe when you think of discipleship, depending on your church experience, you think of programs or classes or some sort of coaching or mentoring, right, to disciple people. Um, you might think of different books that are kind of have come out around discipleship. Now, discipleship happens in all of those, okay? But I think we also need to sort of have a deeper understanding of how discipleship happens in the church, too, other than, you know, things that get labeled discipleship, because I think it's happening sort of in all aspects of what's going on in the church, okay? And that gives us, you know, the idea that a disciple is a person that is formed in sort of all of their being, every part of them, to follow Jesus. And this is something we have to learn how to do, right? Uh, we have to, you know, not just know what to know or what, what to believe, but also how to think, how to live day to day, you know, what to value, what to love, right? Loving the things that Jesus loves, right? And, and what we're willing to give up, right, for the good of following Jesus. Now, we, we, we learn this in the church, but when we think about how we learn, I think it's good to sort of deconstruct that as well. Because like modern education in the world, it, it looks like this, right? You spend a season with a teacher, maybe a year or semester, right? Maybe you see him again somewhere down the road, right? But it's, it's usually a temporary sort of relationship with them. The teacher gives you information, oftentimes. You try to memorize it. You reflect it back in tests. They reflect back an understanding of it. And then you move on to the next teacher, right? Um, and and uh, wh- what you're missing is a chance to sort of observe the teacher living the information that they're giving you, right? You're hearing them talk about it. You're not always seeing them apply it or live it, right? And you're not always getting input on, you know, your own life. They're not able to observe how you live to sort of say, yeah, this is, you're living what's being taught, or, you know, you thought about that wrong, right? You don't get that from teachers often. Um, and, and uh, like, you, you know, uh, th- this is the, how we continue to learn once we leave school as well. So, like, you know, like we have so many opportunities to learn information: social media, YouTube videos, um, podcasts, uh, uh, you know, books that we read. All of these things are coming from people who are wise and have lots of knowledge. But all we're receiving from them is just that knowledge—what you know, something to memorize or to think about, perhaps on our own. In none of these styles of learning are you really spending time real time with the person, to learn by seeing them model it, by their input, by encouragement, or just the sort of way that we're formed by being around other people. Now, I don't, you know, I think we do learn from being in settings where we hear stuff, right? But I think we also learn in a much deeper sense from from other ways. So we were, uh, on uh, Wednesday night, we were doing car seat training, three-hour car seat training. Yes, that exists. Um, And one of the things the teacher said, right, is, is that, um, kids, you know, you, you, we take driver's ed classes, right, which is what, a few weeks, 
right, watching videos of car crash, you know, like, of, uh, did you guys watch, like, the video, like, the, like, I, what was it called? Something about, like, blood on the road. It was, like, the 70, video from the 70s, and it was, like, try to scare you to be a good defensive driver, right? And then, you, you know, you, you, you learn information, right? You spend a couple weeks doing it, and that's how we learn to drive, driver's ed. The teacher in this car seat class told us that kids actually, you know, most kids have learned to drive by the time they're like three years old. I think that's what she said. Three years old is when they actually learn to drive, and it's just by sitting in the car watching their parents. Okay, so they're going to learn, like, how fast to drive, how to treat the speed limit, where to put their hands, how much attention to put on the road, if they're gonna be, they should be looking at their phone or keeping their eyes on the road, like how aggressive or how careful to be. That's all stuff that they're learning from just being around their parents. It's, they don't really learn it in these driver's ed classes. Okay, that's how we often really learn in a deep sense, is, is through that type of being around people and seeing them, modeling, mimicking them, copying them, you know, that, seeing how they think through things. Like that, all of that has a huge, profound impact on us as, as people. And, and th- this is really what like, ancient teaching looked like. Ancient discipleship really looked like this, and this is how Jesus discipled as well. So you had Pharisees and rabbis and philosophers. Like they all kind of did this, and Jesus is kind of taking on that model in calling these disciples to follow him and, and live like him, live with him. So you would spend time, you know, students would spend time around a teacher, they would learn their wisdom and their sayings, right, so they'd take in that information, but they'd also follow their model, right, they'd spend time with them, they'd actually, uh, you know, leave a lot of times their families, perhaps, to follow these disciples around, or these teachers around for several years, right, so they're not just committing to a semester with a few times a week with these teachers, they're committing to live their whole lives with these teachers, to follow them ever they, wherever they would go. And what they're doing is they're observing patterns and habits. They're seeing um, these teachers uh, reason through real decisions and navigate the fallout of them, good or bad, seeing how they respond when things don't work out perfectly, perhaps. Um, they would watch them do little things, like buy food, interact with people on the street. They would watch all of these things. Like They'd have all these interactions that we would consider private today. They're seeing all of these things in the ancient world. And they would eat meals together. They'd share their life with one another. Um, they would know if the teacher was saying one thing and doing another. They would, they would understand that, and they would learn from that, good or bad, w- based off of what they were seeing. Um, they would, the students would talk to one another. They'd work through things together, right, knowing that they're peers, and they're both learning from the teacher, trying to make sense of it. Um, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't just be taking in information, right? They would be formed in every sort of aspect of their being, right? It, it's an environment for full person transformation, not just learning new information, but transforming completely who the person is. The church is the body that Jesus sets up for 360-degree formation as people, right? It's a group of people that were gathered to spend time together around every week, right, to learn from each other, to sort of mirror each other, to learn, to see how we go through different situations with one another. That's what's supposed to be going on in the church, Right? Like a kid sitting in a car watching someone drive. That's what we're supposed to be like in the church. Learning from those who have gifts of teaching, whether it's on Sundays or otherwise. 
uh, living out what's taught together, having conversations, eating meals with one another, getting care from the friends, seeing how they respond to certain situations so that when we come across it, we can respond in a similar way or we can learn to not respond a certain way perhaps because we decide this is not what it would look like to follow Jesus. This is where we learn to pray, to read scripture, right? These fundamental parts of our own spiritual relationship with Jesus himself, we learn it from people around us. Okay, that's how we learn to pray and to read our Bibles, is just from the people we're around typically. That's what the church is supposed to be. We learn what to love and how to love it. We learn what to value. This is all taking place in the church. We learn through good peer pressure, right? Sort of like, ah, I want to, you know, this is what everyone else is doing and it seems really good. I think I'm going to do it too, right? That's how we learn in the church. It's how we're formed fully as people. And all these sort of elements for human formation are supposed to be in place in the church itself. And programs and ministries and strategies, those all play into it as well. But I think discipleship happens at a much sort of deeper level than those types of initiatives that churches will do a lot of time. And I think we need to recognize that, that we're being formed beyond those things in probably much more formative ways. Things like culture, the culture that's formed in the church, the things the church values, um, the relationships, the time we spend around one another. And what comes out of that are fully formed people with habits and rhythms and practices, right? With, with certain loves in place that sort of motivate them. Um, it, it's steady, right? They see it every single day. They don't have to feel blown around by whatever the news cycle is or whatever they're seeing on social media that day. It's a steady, it's a relationship. We aren't afraid, we don't need to impress each other, right? We don't feel afraid of getting kicked out if we make a mistake or, or offend somebody, right? That relationship is secure. We can feel safe in the space of the church. We learn how to view other people around us. We learn how to view the world around us, outside of the church, by being a part of it. We learn how we define success for ourselves in our lives as we think about the next steps we're going to be taking in our life. That's, we should be learning that in the midst of the people we're gathered around. We should be learning how to think, how to reason, how to be mature, not just learning rules, but learning how to think through different problems. We should be learning how to know in our bones how we're supposed to honor our king and then find that reinforced over and over and over again. Even when we sort of half-heartedly commit to this, right, there's a lot of power in that, right? And even if we don't acknowledge it's taking place, it is happening to us one way or another for good or ill. And so if you find yourself upset with the church, what you're probably experiencing is some sort of deformation, right? Some way in which a church is forming people maybe away from following Jesus and towards some other king, perhaps, right? You're experiencing maybe hypocrisy, abuse, pride, malice, or fear, right? Negative values that for some reason have been formed in people in the church, Right? where the school for discipleship is maybe being misused in some way. It's, it's being harnessed to form people towards you know, Jesus in some ways, but maybe not in other ways. Um, and, and I think we've seen the power uh, you know, to, of the church to do this in different ways and, you know, throughout, throughout the world, um, to, to, to form different values in people than what it means to follow Jesus. And I think when we're upset with the church, that's probably what we're upset with, is like the ways the church has sort of deformed people towards different things. And, and we see this on both sides of the political aisles. You know, I think a lot of times, because politics is intermixed in everything we do in the world right now, like I think the church often gets co-opted into that. And what we're being formed a lot of times is to love things, you know, that are, you know, part of worldly politics as opposed to following Jesus. And it happens on both sides of the aisle, okay? So I'm going to give an example here, but please hear me saying I 
think it's very clear this happens on both sides of the political aisle. But to me, January 6th at Washington, the sort of, uh, what, what happened at Washington uh, during the sort of uh, uh, vote to uh, uh, validate the election results, um, that was a great example. Because I remember seeing intermixed with like flags for, for, uh, for, for one political party, you saw a lot of flags that had Jesus' name thrown in there. And I, it just like these two things had become synonymous almost. Right? And I remember like, we did the call to worship that next Sunday, and, and I, I remember specifically talking through how uh, you know, the Beatitudes, a little bit earlier in the book of Matthew, where Jesus is talking about blessed is the peace, are the peacemakers. Right? He's saying this is what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And I was just thinking, like, where's been the Christian formation towards that? Right? Why, why are we not forming people towards seeking peace out as opposed to seeking out division in the world? And I think this is what Jesus has set his church up to form people towards, and it hasn't always happened, right? And we can see many examples of this. So what do we do with that? What's, what's the response of the church supposed to be, right? The response can be to just be done with the church and say it's totally, you know, there's, there's no hope for it. It's completely hopeless. Uh, I'm done with it. That can be one response to it. But I don't think that should be our answer. I think it should be to sort of see the, pl- the church as also the place where we can harness this power for creating disciples and use it to transform people to follow the king. Okay? That's what the church should be for, to bring about the healing of people, to bring about peace in the world, to bring about uh, love and unity and also being willing to sacrifice certain things, give up certain things as we follow this king, being, seeing ourselves as part of something that is unique and different in the world than everything else around us, right? The church still has the power to accomplish that, and it's going to be the place, I think, where we can find healing for the church come about, find, you know, correction, recalibration for different ways the church has deformed people. And if we're going to have that take place, yeah, it's on the leaders, right? Obviously it is, but we all have to understand our part in it as well. Right? We have to take ownership of the formation that's going on in whatever expression of the church that we're a part of. Right? Not by hijacking vision, not by sort of complaining to others about leaders behind their backs. Right? That's, that's not the way to do it. But in pointing out to leaders you know, in ways that you see, like, hey, I, this seems like this is something we're talking about. And I, I, I'm curious, like, how do you see that forming us to follow Jesus as king? Right? Um, and, and also then in understanding how what you do because you're bound up with other people in a church body, what you do is going to be noticed and seen by others, including not showing up to stuff, right? Like not being at stuff. You're still bound together with people. People notice that. It, 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 it impacts them, right? We have to just understand that because we're bound together one another, what we do has ripple effects around us. Our actions, our decisions, all of that stuff gets noticed and has an effect on one another, especially the people we're especially close with, the, the, the deeper relationships we form, our community groups that we have. We form one another and we're formed by each other and our closeness. And I think we need to get that, that all of us are making an impact on one another and be willing to take that seriously, okay? Because it can be used for so much good in people's lives, but only if we understand that that's what's going on and take it really seriously, because when we do, it makes the name of Jesus sort of soar, right? And this new way to be human that he is proclaiming to the world can really root and manifest itself because people are being formed deeply down to their core of who they are to follow Jesus as king. That's the goal of the church. And we can make that happen if we understand that and are willing to commit ourselves to it well. And so this brings me to a brief comment on, on, on church history, okay? Again, 
we can find examples of, of people being formed to follow Jesus in church history. We can find all their examples where that's not the case so much. And, and, and uh, you know, that's a big sort of, you know, uh, tr- thing that trips a lot of people up today, I think, like the, the atrocities that we've noticed in church history. And, and a lot, of, you know, I won't sugarcoat it, right? There's a lot of terrible things the church has been sort of responsible for or complicit with in different places in history. There are a lot of other examples, you know, j- just beyond January 6th we talked about. The Crusades is a, is a, is a famous thing a lot of people like to, to go to. Like, how could this have come out of the church, right? And often we hear snippets of, of stories, right, where we, 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 we see the church sort of fail to meet some standard or something, and, and we feel like, oh, we can sort of stand and judge the church on that and sort of maybe, again, get rid of the church, get rid of the whole idea of the whole institution. But what we're doing when we do that is we're actually judging the church based off of the formation that the church has done on all of Western society. The things that we in the West value, things like human rights, um, uh, science, anti-slavery mindsets, the value of education, um, hospitals, that we should care for the marginalized, um, all of this comes from a world formed by the school of discipleship that the church is, right? Because this is all brand new stuff in the world. Jesus's kingdom is unleashing forces in the world that are completely brand new. And this is just a historical fact, right? I'm not making this up. I'm not preaching this at you. I'm telling you, go read history books and see that what Jesus is unleashing in the world when he starts the church is something brand new to it. And the church, the, the church has completely formed the world in a certain way. So when we you know, are upset with the church, we're upset with it because of standards for it that the church itself has given us. And I think we need to recognize that. Because the church has done its job, right? And the values we have uh, don't come from nowhere. And so there's many examples also of ways in which the school of the church has trained figures like, for example, Gregory of Nyssa. He's living in the 300s. He gave history the first known message critiquing the institution of slavery, right? Just a couple of centuries after Jesus. It's been bubbling for a long time before, but he's the first one to come out and say, this has got to stop. How are we doing this anymore? Okay, that bubbles up in the school of the church. Or Basil, a buddy of his, starting the first ever known public hospital in the world, right, with wings to treat many different types of diseases. This bubbled up out of the school of discipleship that is the church. Or figures like Fabiola, living a little bit after these two. She's the wealthiest woman in Rome, and she determined what it meant for her to follow Jesus was to give all of that wealth away to the poor. These are brand new things in, in him, human history to see this take place, especially in Rome itself, okay, coming because of the school of discipleship of the church. Bishop Eligius in the 600s, he's the greatest jeweler in all of Europe, and he used his vast store of jewels that he had accumulated for himself by being this jeweler to go to different slave ships and buy all the slaves up and then just set them free, okay? Happened because of the school of discipleship that is the church, or Alcuin, living in the late 700s, a brilliant genius, recognized as one of the smartest people alive at the time. The Emperor Charlemagne put him in charge of building schools all across Europe to train people in, yes, Christian understanding of the world, but also what we would now call liberal arts. Okay, this value for education and learning and understanding God's world came out of people formed out of the school of discipleship that is the church. We stand in a long history of those who have been formed in this school, to have been formed to look like Jesus. And God has used it to really transform the world. And so my invitation to you is to find that sort of spark of excitement about what the church has been, what the church still is today, and what it can be as we harness that power in our own space in Red City and try to use that to bless the world. 
to be a distinct people following after Jesus in our bones, down deep to who we are so that we can make an impact on the world and bring other people to know what that looks like. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you um, have put this institution in place that is the church that forms us deeply in, at the core of who we are so that we may be followers of you, Lord, at every level of who we are. I pray that we would not uh, be unaware that that's taking place in our midst for good or for bad and that we would take it seriously so that we can harness that power of, of, of who we are as humans to be put towards the use of making people look more and more like your son. I pray that that would be our goal when we gather together in the church. We pray this in his name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so um, do we have, we can take a couple of questions here. Do we have any? There we go. Uh, okay, this first question, the person asking it starts by saying this is a dumb question. I would disagree. I think it's a great question. <laughs> Uh, and they ask, but how do you follow Jesus? The entire believe and grow model is still really broad for me, and I'm really hungry for structure in following Jesus. Mm -hmm. So do you have any comments on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I would say there's not one way to follow Jesus, and that's part of the reason maybe that you're getting tripped up, right? Like, uh, the human life is made up of a whole bu bunch of different things, right? We, we, we believe things about the world, right? We believe that the world is round and that if we, you know, get in our car, it's going to drive us to church on Sunday mornings. We believe we should eat some this food and not this food, right? We also do things, right? We, we get up in the morning, we have habits and we have patterns that honestly we do a lot of times without thinking. We just kind of make up our day. We don't think about a lot of it. Um, like uh, we have things we love and enjoy that motivate us to get out of bed, right? We're complex people as humans. I think to follow Jesus is to try to engage every part of us into service and, and, and love and joy and worship of Jesus. And so what it means to follow Jesus is sort of take, I think, a full accounting of who we are as humans and ask, what does it look like for me to follow Jesus, to look like Jesus, to sort of, you know, be made into his image? That's what Paul says in Romans 8, that the, the goal of salvation is to, you know, make us into the image of Christ, to make us look like Jesus, all right? What does it look like for me to look like Jesus in this part of my life, in what I'm thinking right now, what I'm believing, in how I'm uh, structuring my day, in, in terms of how I think about my job or the relationships around me, right? All these different parts that make us who we are. And this is not, there's not, again, there's not like a recipe for this that we all have to follow that's exactly the same, right? It's not one way to follow Jesus. It's sort of a, again, a school where we're learning together what it looks like to follow Jesus in all of our lives. So, that's a broad answer to your question. Maybe that is not helpful. I hope, I hope it is. But um, yeah, that's what I would, would say to that. And I would just add, you know, based off of what you were just talking about, about the church being a school of discipleship, I would say get involved. Um, we have, if, if you want to get involved at Red City, which we encourage you to do, like join a community group where you're meeting with people and forming deep relationships and having those um, conversations with people where you can say like, hey, you know, this part of my life, I'm not really sure what it looks like to follow Jesus. How do you do it? And learn from people and, um, or come talk to me or Joel. We can, you know, set you up with a mentor or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think being around people who can help you process those things is mm -hmm. really an important part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Okay. Next question um, asks, so they're asking, how, how should I respond to the church when 
They welcome people across the political aisle. So I'm assuming they mean across the political aisle from their beliefs. Hmm. Um, when that other side holds positions of oppression, racism, and views that lead to discrimination or violence. They say, I often feel afraid or unsafe when the church welcomes everyone, but doesn't offer protection to me. Um, they're wondering if this feels selfish, um, but they want to also feel like they are not looked down on by people. Yeah. So a kind of a vulnerable question, mm -hmm. um, but I think getting at some of, there's a couple questions asking about politics and, mm -hmm. and how you can kind of handle that so yeah I want to take it in that yeah that's a good question direction. yeah um, oh man we did a whole series on this last fall um, but I, I think I would start out by saying um, it's uh, I think we should take it as like the goal of the church to try to you know push people to think whatever their political convictions are, that following Jesus is more important. And so if it's true that a certain political party has um, things that you fear, or you think are bad for the world, um, that hopefully in the church, the church is challenging the people who maybe subscribe to that political conviction, is challenging to think more Christ-like about those issues than maybe other people who subscribe to that political session. Um, and also, I think it's important to, to go back to this idea of like, when God reveals himself to us, it's not like he reveals himself fully to, you know, party X and not party Y, Right? Democrats don't have the full measure of God's revelation. Republicans don't have the full measure of God's relation, uh, revelation, right? Both parties, I think, have aspects that are part of what the kingdom is about, okay? And so I think it's important for us to sort of celebrate that and understand it, right? And again, in the first, I think it was the first sermon we did in that politics series. If you want to go back and listen to it, I, I try to break down, like, here's some things I see, convictions from people on both sides of the political spectrum that, to me, look like they honestly and seriously are trying to follow Jesus. And because politics is a package deal, I use the analogy of like buying cable, where it's like, I want to buy cable, I want to get one channel, right? I really want ESPN so I can watch NDSU play football. But now I have 500 other channels and I don't want any of them, but I kind of, I have to take them on, right, in order to get this one thing. That's how politics is today. So a lot of times, you know, in order for us to get the one thing, you know, something we find to be of high value to us for whatever reason, when we uh, vote a certain way, we're taking on a package deal of things that we're not always for sure on, but that, that also forms us again to love those things. That's the challenge of it, right? And it's part of just the failure of the two-party system, I suppose, right? It's not a way to get around it. Um, I think the best thing you can do, if that's how you feel, um, in, uh, you know, if you feel like afraid knowing that there are people of a different political conviction in a church, is to get to know them. And find out, do these people actually fit, you know, the, the fear-based versions of them I get on whatever, wherever I get my news? Is that actually what they look like? Maybe they do have some views that I disagree with and I think are actually, you know, not good for the world. But do I actually think in their character that they hate me or that they hate people like me? Is that what I really think is going on? Right? Get to know them. I, I think that uh, so much of how we consume our, how we view people in the world today comes from not actually getting to know people, but hearing other people like us talk about how terrible those other people are. I think a lot of those sort of misconceptions about the other side can be done away with when we get to know people. Now, that's not always true, okay? Now, don't hear me saying that that will always be the case, but I do think if it's good, it can help you have an appreciation for the other side if there are people in your church that you trust, follow, you know, care about following Jesus and the values of Jesus just as much as you do, and to know that they're on the same team as you in that way, to know that, like, maybe they're not as scary as you think. Yeah, that'd be my, my thought to that. Yeah.
And I would just add, if there were ever a time where anyone truly yeah. felt unsafe or, or if there's anything mm -hmm. said or done that made you feel unsafe, for sure, come talk to mm -hmm. us because that's yeah. not something... And we want to protect. And the church, that's another part about being the church is like we value protecting people, right, Ag against abuse or oppression of some kind. So if that was really happening, we would try to counteract it. We would do something as a church. To, we would go to that person and talk to them, try to challenge them. You know, if worst case scenario, worst came to worst, there's this thing called church discipline. We really, really hope we never have to use it, but it's something we have in case we need to say, this person's presence is actually harming people, and we at least think for a time it's good to remove them from the assembly. Like, that ha can happen within the church. So if you're experiencing it, like, come to us, and we can sort of figure out how to go from there. You, that's one of the values of the church, is like we have this ability to sort of do stuff like that.